Um, we are in the book of 2 Timothy, so if you have a Bible, you can open up to 2 Timothy. If you don't have one, just look underneath you. You can grab one of those uh, white and blue ones underneath. It's in the New Testament towards the end of the Pauline letters. Those are just letters written by Paul. Um, if you don't know where that is, just look on the table of contents at the very front. It's no big deal at all. And you can, you can pull over to uh, 2 Timothy. I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll get started. <clears throat> God, uh, as we sang, I pray that we would experience more of your presence and more of your goodness this morning. The glory of your goodness. We know that this is primarily mediated to us by your word. It's, it's not by me. Um, I am used by you, but it's, it's your word coupled with the presence of the Holy Spirit that speaks to us. And so I pray, God, that you would by your sovereign power, um, as much as possible, remove me from the equation and speak through me. And Father, that we would have a, uh, we would have a word from you this morning. People from all over, kind of uh, different experiences, some grieving and hurting deeply, some receiving some of the best news of of the month, of the year, and many kind of just falling in between. And so, I pray God that whether we are really, really flying high or really, really down in a valley, or in between and kind of unaware that we still need your presence, God, that you would come now and make it very much aware to, to us that we need you. God, I need you this morning to speak through me. and I'm just aware, constantly aware of my inability to, uh, to really do much without your presence, without your spirit. So come now, God. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, um, some of you aren't aware and some of you might be, but... A friend, a dear friend of mine, passed away this past week, and he is one of the brothers of a couple people in our church. And so, his his death was was untimely, at least from our perspective, and sudden. And so, as I started towards the end of this week, being able to write the sermon, I was trying to decide between finishing Second Timothy or you know, something else that would be more timely for the occasion. And as I began to write the sermon and just look at the text, um, this is perfect for the occasion. Um, and it was actually really cathartic for me to write as I wrote this sermon. And I think hopefully, really, whether you have any idea what I'm talking about right now or not, it's going to fit the occasion for you on the idea that God desires for us to be faithful to the end. I mean, that's really the main point of this text. It's faithful to the end. Paul is finishing his last thoughts in 2 Timothy today. Uh, he's been pouring out his heart to a dear son in the faith. Paul is in prison in Rome, and it's not like you think of prison where he gets air conditioning and a cot and a nice toilet. He's down in a hole. 
He's, they dug a big hole and they stuck him down there, and that's where he is. He's cold. You'll see today he actually asked for a cloak. He asked for a coat. Um, and so being in a prison as a Christian 2,000 years ago is not the same at all. But Paul, he knows, as we're going to see today, that his time has come. He knows that he's going to die. It says it right there in the very first verse of today, in verse 6 of chapter 4, for I am already being poured out as a drink offering. This is language that he knows the time of his life is going to be coming to a close. And so as Paul, a spiritual father to Timothy, is going to pen his last thoughts, Paul, who was, went on three missionary journeys, Paul, who wrote um, 13, I think, most of the New Testament, if you will. He wrote tons of stuff. But this man, Paul, who lived his life with what seems to be reckless abandon for Christ, is going to pen some last thoughts to his dear, beloved spiritual son. Certainly all of us would say, wow, we can benefit from that. We need to lean in and think about what are some of these last thoughts. And as he's closing the letter, if, if, this, if we're going to say what would be some of the most important things that he's going to say, certainly he's going to close with that. And that's what we're looking at today is the, the exhortations from Paul to his spiritual son about the absolute necessity of importance that as you live your life, a well-lived life really in the end must persevere all the way to the end. And we're going to talk about what that looks like. Um, so today we're going to look at chapter 4, verse 6 through 22. And as I said, um, the idea is being faithful to the end. The main idea of all of what we're going to look at is as you pursue faithfulness unto God, you can rest in some things. You can rest in the Savior's grace. You can rest in God's perfect faithfulness already for us on our behalf because He was willing to go to the cross for us. And you can rely on His strength to finish the course. But we need to also couple that with the the balance of trying to figure out as we rely on all those things, the necessity of us also to endure and persevere to the end. So there's, a, there's a, a double responsibility, if you will, that God's promising and he's faithful to the end, but also for us to persevere. And, you know, how we try to work that out theologically is, is somewhat of a mystery. But we're going to look at verse 6 today. And as we're looking at this, there's... There's three ideas or three um, teachings on faithfulness in this set of verses on what it means to persevere to the end or be faithful to the end. We're going to see an illustration of Paul's faithfulness. We're going to see some various illustrations of faithfulness, kind of positive and negative. And in the very end, uh, I'm going to save that one because I think it's obviously the best. So look at verse 6 through verse 8. This is an example of Paul's faithfulness. And Paul writes... For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. Capital D. That means the end, the second coming. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearance. So the first thing that we can see here, the first example of faithfulness that we can see is Paul's example of faithfulness. The idea here in this last little bit of words from Paul to his spiritual son Timothy, a pastor in the city of Ephesus, is you need to be faithful to the end. And so first we see Paul's example. He says that he's going to be poured out as a drink offering. This is Paul um, issuing this challenge really to all of us that there's an appending martyrdom that's coming to him. He holds out this possibility, if you've read the book of Philippians, in chapter 2, verse 17. Um, and, and the book of Philippians in chapter 2, verse 17, he tells them, 
that a time will come where he's going to be poured out as a drink offering. He says, even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. So he knows that there's this, there's, there's potenti- potentiality that one day it could be that the Lord would require my very life for the faith. And here in, in 2 Timothy, it's not just a potentiality anymore. It's an actuality where Paul is realizing that he is going to die for his faith. Um, and Paul's example of faithfulness demonstrates that because he is willing to give his life freely for the sake of Christ, that we should be willing or say, I am willing to give my life freely for the sake of Christ. And not only just for the sake of Christ, but for the proclamation of the gospel and the glory of Jesus then to be spread to everyone. This is what we're going to see happens later on in his life. Just like the image that's being supplied to us in verse 6, where he says, I am already being poured out as a drink offering. We are also, um, we should be willing to pour out our lives for Christ's sake. When our life is, other, is, is completely over, will others be able to look at our lives and say, what, however length of life the Lord gave us, that, that he or she, as they look at us, was willing to pour out their life for Christ's sake. At the end of your own life, instead of others, as they kind of peer over your shoulders and look at this life that you lived, will you, in your own heart, as you've finished the race, kept the faith, will you be able to say, I have, I have poured out my life for Christ's sake? Jesus expects nothing other than that. If he is willing to pour out his own very life for us on the cross, likewise, we should be willing to um, want to live in the same way that Christ lived and be willing to pour out our life. So here we're seeing in this first kind of verses, as we're looking at the example of Paul, uh, the example of martyrdom. I'm not here saying, therefore, everyone should go be a martyr for Christ. I'm not saying that. We know that in Psalm 116, 15, precious in the sight of God are the martyrs of, of his, or, or those who would give their lives as martyrs as children. But I'm not saying that you should live your life seeking martyrdom. I'm saying that whatever the Lord would require of you, that you would say, Lord, my life is yours freely. And what come what may, I don't know. Certainly, I want to uh, be able to persevere and live here as long as I can. You've given me a family or you've given me friends or you've given me things that I want to be faithful to. I want to live in this world but not make the world my treasure, not make the world my idol, but still enjoy the precious gifts of this world. But always to the eye of, as it says in Philippians 1.21, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So as long as I'm here, as long as I'm breathing, as long as I'm walking around, my whole life is for Christ. And I'm going to do the best thing I can. I'm going to do everything I can to pour out my life for Christ. But if I die, well, that's gain. I am with Christ then forever. So he also kind of continues in that illustration from being poured out as a drink offering, and he changes in verse 6 to a second illustration in verse 6, and he says, and the time of my departure has come. This, this word departure is language of kind of a boat being unhitched from a dock and shoved out. And it's an illustration of as it's being loosed out and going on, it's, it's going on to a better place. In other words, what we see here is the truth of what's, what's true for Christians. And Christians only. Christians never really die. We, we die physically, but we never ever die spiritually. 
as the verse says, we depart. And as we depart, we go to the best place there is with Jesus. Right now, before the second coming and heaven, and then when he comes back, back to the heavens and the earth to live forever with renewed bodies. Forever. Which is unbelievable news. So we never die. We simply just live lives that say, for me to live is Christ, but to die is gain. So as we look at this and we read this, I think that the first question I would have, and likely you would say, is how is it FUD? Because this is maybe familiar, or I've lived this as a Christian for a long time, but still I always feel this tension of dying for Jesus, or at least saying, yes, Lord, my life is yours. Take it whatever you want. How, how, can, we, how can we mentally understand and try to get our, our, our mind wrapped around this idea of suffering for Jesus? Because that just sounds so foreign to my, to my life. You know, I understand that there's Christians that live in other countries that kind of deal with that, but that's such a foreign concept to me to think of being willing to suffer. How can a Christian talk about suffering for Christ like this? I've got a couple verses that I'll read to you. They won't be on the screen, but I think that the Bible is the best way to try to understand Christian suffering and at least being willing to say, here's my life, Lord, do what you want. And how can we understand suffering? One is in 2 Corinthians 4.17. This, this will run um, and, and start comparison or, or start contrast, I would say, to the way that we think about suffering, usually. Usually we think suffering is hard and terrible and it seems like it's, it may go our whole life. He says, for these light, momentary afflictions. This is Paul. I mean, Paul lived just a, a, a horrific life of suffering. He says, for these light, momentary afflictions, they are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So the short lives that we live, 60, 70, 80, some of us 100 years maybe, um, any, any sufferings or afflictions that we feel, really, in comparison to all eternity, they're light and they're momentary compared to the eternity of glory and joy we will have with Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 4.17. And pretty much an almost same kind of language. In Romans 8.18, he says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us um, in heaven. Romans 8.18. And so while Paul does say, I am going to be willing to pour out my life as a drink offering, and I realize that my actual time of departure has come. And he's right. He does. He, he, he does die for the faith. That as he looks at all the sufferings he experienced, he calls them light and momentary. But what's real in our experience is that they feel like they're heavy and they last a long time. And I don't want to minimize that. Like I don't want to minimize the fact that any sufferings we feel, be it direct sufferings for the faith or sufferings that we experience because of, we live in products of the fall. Just death in general cancer with your sisters or parents or brothers or, or close friends, tragedies from natural um, kind of calamities that, that befall us from hurricanes or whatever. All these things, I think, are sufferings that we as Christians experience because of sin being in the world. And when they happen, they, they certainly in those moments don't feel light or momentary. But eternally, 
an eternal perspective that we may have something happen to us that is horrible. I've heard John Piper say something along these lines. His mother died uh, whenever he was younger. She was uh, on a mission trip. And he said, for the rest of his life, living without his mother was, was extremely painful. And people say, you eventually get over it, you eventually get over it. And he goes, I didn't find that to be true. It's like my left arm was cut off. And the rest of my life, I have to live without my left arm. And what's true is, for those who experience these kinds of sufferings, is I just learned to live with one arm. And every time I want to use my left arm, it's not there. And every time I want to see that loved one again, they're not there. And I'll never, ever not feel the weight of that. We will always feel it. It won't ever get completely better. There'll be moments of mending, moments of healing. But all of that is finally returned to us when we get to heaven. The light and momentariness becomes more of a reality when we're in eternity for 10,000 years upon 10,000 years upon 10,000 years with Christ. So that's how we can talk about suffering in this present day as Christ followers. Because in comparison to all eternity, they are light and momentary. The sufferings that will be revealed to us are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to us. Charles Spurgeon says, To come to thee, capital T, so he's talking about God. To come to thee is to come home from exile. To come to land out of a raging storm. To come to rest after long labor. To come to the goal of my desires and summit all of my wishes. It is better to be with Christ. Far better. So when we talk about sufferings in this present world, we talk about the example of martyrdom that Paul lays out before us. is because... Being with Christ is far better than anything. And that will happen for those that are in Christ one day. You can continue looking at this example of Paul. He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. What's interesting here, especially it's noticeable in middle school, um, is that we love a good fight. Have you noticed this? Like we're in a middle school, fight. Everybody run over there. But if we, like adults would say, no, I don't love a good fight. I don't love a good fight, but you do. You really do. Whenever, it, we just kind of transfer it over to sport teams where it's a little more legal and nobody gets in trouble. I want to see this team beat this team. I want to see, you know, that we love football or whatever sport you like. Or if you don't like sports, you still have a competitiveness. Like, I've played board games with some of you, and you like a good fight. Um, <laughs> it's, it's evident. Um, and you might say that about me, and you're right. So the point is, is that when we see this idea, when Paul says, I have fought the good fight, something inside of us is like, I want to fight the good fight. I like a good fight. Bring it on. I'm ready to fight the fight. And so that's, that's a real, I think, natural reaction. But what's true here is we see Paul say, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Paul was a fighter. I mean, he was a warrior. Not like Jesus was the, was the fighter and warrior. He's the ultimate warrior. That sounds like a wrestler back from the 80s. But Jesus, <laughs> Jesus was, for us, the ultimate warrior that, that goes before Satan, sin, and death and conquers them for us on our behalf so we can receive forgiveness forever. That's, I mean, that's the message of the gospel. But Paul clearly would say, I have fought the good fight. I have kept the race. Paul was willing to say, as a believer, I understand on this flip side, we know that God will give us his spirit to help us endure to the end. But Paul understood the other side from other verses that, that it is absolutely essential for us as Christians to persevere to the end. That's why he writes things like in 1 Corinthians 15, Now, brothers, I would remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand, and notice this, by which you are being saved if... Maybe we skip over that sometimes. 
So we're like, yeah, I, I love the gospel. I believe it. And I'm going to hold fast to it. And then he says, if you hold fast to the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. So there's this absolute necessity of perseverance. He also says it again in Colossians chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated, hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, those are unbelievers who are now believers, he has now reconciled us in his body of flesh in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Yes, Jesus, I love that part of the gospel. I was just awful in evil and deeds. I was just my deeds, the bad things, those things need to be forgiven. But what's true of me is that I had a, I had a fallen nature. I was, I was an old creation. So that being made a new creation is what's more important. And then because of that, now of the gospel of trusting Christ's death for me on, on behalf on the cross what he has declared me in 22 is reconciled me in the body of flesh by his death in order to present me holy and blameless and above reproach. And we love 21 and 22 and we stop there and we're like, amen. Praise God, he calls me holy now. I mean, because I wasn't and I still don't feel that way. He calls me blameless. But verse 23 is just as important. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from what? What does that mean then to persevere? Not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard. So we have to continually believe in and re-preach and believe in the gospel every day. Christ has called me holy. Christ has called me blameless. And so there's this necessity, as Paul understands, um, to be a, a faithful fighter. So we, in this kind of first idea of Paul, we see that that example of the martyrdom, but we also see an example of a, of a faithful fighter. He understands the necessity of persevering. Imagine this war-torn warrior with hardly any clothes and a hole riding from Rome, riding to a spiritual brother. This is an absolute moving scene as he's writing these words. This is an unbelievable man. And I want you to notice something. This is, I think, important. For, uh, for mediocre feeling people like me, and perhaps like you, I just don't feel like I've got great gifts. I think this is going to be great for you. I have fought the fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Notice he doesn't say he's won the race. He's finished the race finished for those of us that are mediocre and not the best and, and never feel like we win anything Clemson fans you'll, you're going to feel right at home here <laughs> sorry God's calling us to finish the race not win the race Jesus won the race for us and he's calling us to persevere and finish finish well we're going we're gonna to struggle we're going to feel mediocre we're going to feel like we don't have the best gifts. We're going to feel like I, I'm so substandard comparatively to these other people that seem like they've got it all together. And the truth is they don't either. No one has it all together. But what we're called to do in this race is to finish. I want you to hear this. The point of Christianity is finishing the race because Jesus has already won the battle. I want to say that one more time because I want to make sure you hear it. The point of Christianity is finishing the race because Jesus has already won the battle. 
even now at 39, been in ministry now for 19, 18 years or whatever, I'm already starting to experience those that I was given the opportunity to in my 20s minister to and see them on a good trajectory and then they kind of fade out of life and we move and they move and they go to cities. I'm already starting to kind of talk to them again and hearing some people that have already moved off the race and decided that they don't want to finish the race. I'm tired of it. I mean, I'm just tired of it. Call them, but do the best I can. But what God is calling us to is to finish the race because he's won the battle. So Christianity, don't miss. I don't want you to miss this. It's a fight. We love a good fight. It's a fight. Praise God, he gives us the, the Holy Spirit to complete it. And we have the gospel which declares that the battle's already won. But we still have the necessity of, here as Paul, to fight to the end. To persevere to the end. Now, I don't, want to, I don't want you to misunderstand me. Because I'm one of these once saved, always saved guys. I'm one of those perseverance of the saints guys. I believe that once we're saved, we're always saved. But I'm not going to shrink down from holding up the biblical tensions that say, you have to persevere to the end. Because that's just the Bible. It's just the Bible. And so, let's be the kind of people that have the resolve like Edwards to say, resolved, and then I am going to persevere to the end. I'm going to fight the good fight. I'm going to finish this race. I'm not going to win because Jesus has won for me. I'm going to keep the faith. When we say keep the faith, we mean hold on to the truth of the gospel. Guard the gospel in us. As the Spirit is guarding it in us, we're going to cling to Christ, cling to Christ alone as our only hope. But more so, not only our only hope, because I, I think that that's good language and that's good vernacular to use to talk about Christ, our only hope. But I think it's even more beautiful to say, and my only treasure. He's my only treasure. Like Psalm 16, 11, it says, Make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. So Jesus isn't just my hope, and he is my hope. He's not just it, but he's also my treasure. I'm, I'm so thankful that my only hope of being in heaven is already secure because Christ has won that battle. But more than that, I want to have my affections follow that truth and make Jesus my treasure. I want to feel that. I'm an emotive person. God has created us as humans to be affectionate people, loving people, to feel things. I don't, I don't want to shrink down from those things. He's created these things. Now, if I just only rely on affections, I'm in trouble. I'm in trouble because my affections and emotions are, they range all over the place. So I ground it in the truth of the gospel. But I still want to feel this. I want Christ to be my treasure, as it says, at his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So in this first example of us, for us, we fight to endure. We run the race and we guard the treasure. Every day you're closer. That's a good joy. That's a, that's a wonderful thing to hear. Every day you're closer. So keep running, keep fighting, keep guarding, and soon you will see Jesus. Soon you will see Jesus. Verse 8, I think, is, is beautiful. Because if we hear that and we say, yes, by the power of the Spirit, I'm going to do that. Notice what, what's, what's said to us. When you do that, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness. The Lord will give you a reward, a crown, an award, as it says. We don't need to try to think that that means that you're going to, you know, you know, you think of the, the Olympics and, you know, you've got third place, he gets to step up like three inches, and then second place gets to step up eight, and then, you know, on the top is you with your gold medal. Look at me. 
I am like the king of the world here in heaven. Look at me. We don't need to think of it that way. It's not the Olympics in your first place. Um, If it was, Jesus would be number one. But what the point that we're trying to hear is, um, God's a good God, and he loves to give, give good gifts to his children. And he rejoices in the fact that when we get to heaven and live a life that says, I'm going to persevere to the end because you've given me the spirit, because you've entrusted me with the gospel, as it says, and I want to tell others, and you've saved me by the gospel, the Lord is such a good God and a loving Father that he is going to give crowns to us, rewards to us. Not for our glory, but because he's good. But because he's good. So this is not... A, uh, this is not something to think that's small. This is not something we just kind of scoff at and say, well, that's one day. I can't see it now. This is a big deal. No one will ever give you a better reward or award than God. No iPhone is more precious than the crowns that you'll receive from God one day. No flat screen TV. No fill in the blank of what you like. No one will ever give you a better gift than the Lord. So that's the first one. It's this example of Paul and the exhortation to fight the faith, finish the race, and keep the faith. The second one is in verses 9 through 15. And what we're going to see here is just kind of positive and negative examples of faithfulness. This won't take long. But as we, as we look at it, I want to read it first. Do your best to come to me soon, for Demas, in love with this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. Crescens, if you're pregnant, there's a, there's a, there's a name, Crescens right there in the text, has gone to Galatia, Titus to Dalmatia. Luke alone is with me. Um, Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is very useful to me in ministry. Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus, and when you come, bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas. Also bring the books, and above all, the parchments. Oh, he wants to write some more. Alexander the coppersmith did me great harm. The Lord will repay him according to his deeds. That's good for a pastor to hear when a pastor saying this to another. So-and-so did me great harm, and I just rejoice. The Lord's going to do him, uh, repay him one day. It's for a pastor, when you hear that, you're like, yes. Um, anyway, uh, beware. That has nothing to do with the sermon. It's not part of my points. But um, could be true for you. No, I'm just kidding. Um, uh, beware. I'm just kidding. Beware of him yourself, for he strongly opposed our message. He strongly opposed our message. So there's, there's, some, there's some negative and positives. But before we get into that, I want, you to know, uh, I want you to notice with me verse 9. Paul, spiritual father of Timothy, the spiritual son, in verse 9, before he lists out these names, he says, do your best to come to me soon. They were friends. Paul treasured his friendship. He loved his friendship with Timothy. John Stott says, one sometimes meets super spiritual people who they claim that they never, you'll, basically what he's going to say is, you're going to meet sometimes people sometimes that say, I don't need people. I'm the own lone wolf here on an island, and I'm good with that. He says, one sometimes meets super spiritual people who claim that they never feel lonely and have no need for friends. For the companionship of Christ alone satisfies all their needs. And this is what he says. Stott kind of destroys that. But human friendship is the loving provision of God for mankind. This is insanity to God. God lives in community in the Trinity, from eternity past to eternity future. Who are we to say that we shouldn't? And so companions are good gifts. And so you can just hear the longing here of Paul. Timothy, do your best right now to come to me. Because friends, spiritual friends, are great gifts from God. And then we're going to see some things that he writes. 
seeing some negatives. And as we see this, are you Demas or are you Mark? Are you Alexander or are you Luke? Demas. He's in love with this present world more than Jesus. He deserts his ministry. It seems as though Demas at one time had a ministry. And then at the end, he utterly abandons it and he leaves them um, helpless in a dire situation. And he goes because he becomes more in love with the present world than doing ministry. He deserts and goes on to Thessalonica. It's hard to imagine that a man can do ministry with Paul and eventually desert. It sounds like Judas. Can a man do ministry with Jesus and desert? That's what Demas did. He left. Not only was there Demas, there's this guy Alexander there in verse 14, 15. These are the negative examples, by the way. He was a coppersmith. Um, one commentator said that because he was a coppersmith, maybe he was an idol maker. And so Paul preaching the gospel was kind of cutting in on the bottom line of Mr. Idol Maker. You know, they, they actually worshiped little idols back then, sometimes. And so he was maybe losing his money. Um, there's a verse in 1 Timothy 1, uh, in the first letter, where it says, There are some that have made shipwreck of the faith among who are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have handed over to Satan that they may learn not to blaspheme. Commentators go back and forth on whether it's the same Alexander. Perhaps it is. Um, but that's pretty strong language. If that's the same, Paul says in, in 1 Timothy, he's handed this guy Alexander over to Satan. And here he says, the Lord's going to repay him according to his deeds because he opposed the message of the gospel strongly. So Alexander harms other people personally, opposes the gospel, and ultimately God's going to repay him for all this. So these are kind of the negative examples of faithfulness. I mean, these are things that we don't want to ever do. We don't want to ever harm people. We don't ever oppose the gospel. We don't want to ever desert our ministry. We don't want to ever know that the, the, that the retribution of God will lie on us for all these things. But he also holds up these positive examples. He says, Luke, only Luke is with me. This isn't a disparaging mark towards Luke. It's not like, I'm all alone except for Dr. Luke. And he's so nerdy and hanging out with him is awful. It's not like that. Um, he's, he's holding Luke up in high regard. He's saying, Luke's the one that's remained with me. Luke alone is with me. Dr. Luke here, who, who wrote actually more words of the New Testament than Paul. Luke acts are massive tomes and end up being more words than Paul's letters. Um, so he has Luke, who's a tough friend in tough times. That's what we need. We need people that are tough friends in tough times. He also holds out Mark. So we don't want to be Alexander. We want to be Luke. We don't want to oppose. We want to be a tough friend in tough times like Luke. We don't want to be like Demas, who starts off well and trails off and doesn't stay stable and steadfast. But instead, we want to be like Mark, who started off okay and then had this bad spell. And look at this. This is really important in verse 11. Mark, get Mark and bring him with you. For he is, this is amazing language if you know the whole story, very useful to me in ministry. So what's the full story behind that, if you're unaware? Over in the book of Acts, um, earlier, before Paul has died, probably some 20 years earlier, um, in the book of Acts, chapter 15, and verse 36, it says, Paul, this is back when he was a missionary with Barnabas. After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return to visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. And Barnabas wanted to take with them John, called Mark. So Barnabas wants to take Mark. But Paul thought best not to take um, with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had, not had gone, and, not, and had not gone with them to do the work. So there was a moment where Mark started out great. I mean, he wrote the gospel of Mark, right? And then he had this little moment where as things got tough, he's like, I, I, gotta, I gotta retreat. I gotta get out of here. I, I can't do this ministry anymore. And so from that, notice what Paul says. Um, 
Paul thought it wasn't best to bring Mark with him. You still have Barnabas. And then it says, and there arose, arose a sharp, there, and there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other. Barnabas and Paul, there was such a sharp disagreement about the usefulness of Mark that Paul said, I'm not bringing this guy. He can't do the work. So Paul goes on and leaves, and Barnabas goes another way and says, Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers. They went to the grace of the Lord. So Paul here, in this moment, thinks Mark's no good. Some 20 years later, Mark, through faithful, faithfulness, returns to the work of the ministry and keeps enduring. And here, and I think this is just amazing kind of redemptive language, Paul says here, as he's dying, get Mark. Bring him with me, for he's useful in ministry. So we don't want to be a Demas who starts off okay and leaves. We want to be Mark. And we might have our hills and valleys, but in the end, we're fulfilling our ministry, and we're useful in ministry. We also have Tychicus mentioned. He fulfills his ministry. We have Timothy, as he's saying, bring me my books and my cloak and parchment. These are probably really expensive things. Paul wants these things and says, bring these things to me, so he's trustworthy, Timothy. So we have... Uh, Timothy being a servant to Paul, Tychicus also fulfilling ministry just like Mark. So these are the positive examples that we see in the text. So the first thing that we saw was Paul's example. The second thing we see are these random kind of positive and negatives of these people that perhaps you were unaware of. And then the last one, and this one's I think the best. We have Jesus' perfect faithfulness toward us. So now we have the God-man's faithfulness, Christ. Verse 16 and following. At my first offense, no one came to stand by me, but all deserted me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord, Jesus, stood by me and strengthened me so that through the message, through me, the message might be fully proclaimed and all the Gentiles might hear it. So I was rescued from the lion's mouth, that's death. The Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. So the third thing that we see here is Jesus' perfect faithfulness toward us. We see these friendships of Paul and these positive and negatives. But without a doubt, I think we all need to hear this right here. If it ever comes to where all desert you, if it ever comes to where you really feel like you're all alone, you need to rest in this precious promise. Jesus will never, ever desert you. You will never, ever be all alone because you'll have Christ. It says that his first defense, this is where Paul is by himself, He's probably having to defend his, his Christianity because he's put in jail. And in this particular verse, this is kind of, and I don't want to make this sound sacrilegious. One of the commentators wrote it, so you know, don't yell at me. He said uh, that this is his own type of Garden of Gethsemane. This is Paul's own type of Garden of, of Gethsemane. He, uh, he's all by himself, and he even says, may it not be charged against them. That sounds like Christ on the cross. Forgive them, they know not what they're doing. And so Paul says, May it not be charged against them. But I want you to notice there's, as, as we look at Jesus' perfect faithfulness toward us, there's kind of three little, three little sub-points about what it says about Jesus' faithfulness towards us. The first one, it says, the Lord stood by me. So as Christ's faithfulness is toward us, and, and certainly you could come up with more, but in the text we see, we see three. One, the Lord's going to stand by you. When no one else is there for Paul, Jesus stands by him. In this moment, when Jesus stands by him, we see Paul strengthened enough to do something. He says that the Lord stood by me, and because of that, now I'm going to proclaim the gospel to the Gentiles, which is kind of a big deal if you just remember last week's sermon where he tells 
Timothy in verse, chapter 4, verse 2, to preach the word. And in 4, verse 5, he tells him to endure suffering and do the work of the evangelist. So because the Lord's standing by him, the same thing he's told Timothy, which is to preach the gospel and endure and be, do the work of the evangelist, Paul is now doing that exact same thing. He's fulfilling the ministry still of the ministry to the, to the Gentiles because the Lord Jesus is standing by him. Tony Marita says, when you recognize that you ultimately stand before God Almighty, you are freed from the fear of man. The fear of man would keep us from doing that. But the Lord stood by him. And Paul fulfills this ministry that he just exhorted Timothy to do not, I don't know, I'm not good at math, 15 verses ago. Not only does the Lord stand by him, but the Lord stood by me, the Lord strengthened me. The Lord stood by me and the Lord strengthened me. We absolutely need to hear that the Lord stands by us. But if that's all it said, the Lord stands by me, but I still got to kind of march forward in my own gutsy strength. Not only does he stand by us, but he literally gives us the strength too. I mean, that's a huge deal. He gives us strength. This is a precious promise that God will strengthen you in your times of trouble. All of our work that we do is ultimately on God's strength. Colossians chapter 1. This is just popping in my head. I want to read it to you. Colossians chapter 1, verse 29. For I toil, struggling with all his energy that he works powerfully within me. So all my toil and all my struggling is his energy working in me. So not only does the Lord stand by us and not only does the Lord rescue us, it, Paul says in verse 18, I'm sorry, not only does the Lord stand by us and strengthen us, in verse 18 it says the Lord will rescue me. Now we know that Paul's not talking about physical rescue. He dies for the faith pretty close after this. And so when we talk about rescue, we talk about rescue, we're talking about the ultimate rescue, which is because of the gospel, the Lord Jesus will bring us, as he says here, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever, amen. So when we're talking about rescue, we're talking about being brought safely into the heavenly kingdom and being with Jesus forever in his glory. The Lord's perfect faithfulness towards us stands by us and he strengthens us, but he promises this amazing rescue, this rescue from here and with him forever in his heavenly kingdom. I think sometimes we need to realize that the perfect faithfulness of Jesus toward us has an ultimate end. We need to remind ourselves as we're daily struggling and it doesn't feel like that ultimate end is anywhere in sight. There is ultimate rescue that's coming to us and we'll be ushered into his heavenly kingdom forever, with him forever in his glory. Paul begins this letter of 2 Timothy with gospel centrality. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1, he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. So he starts with this gospel centrality of promised life. And when we say life, we mean forever life. And as he ends it, he also ends this letter with gospel centrality, as it says in verse 22. The Lord be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Grace. Promised life at the 
front book in and promised grace at the end. This war-torn apostle experienced God's amazing grace. He testified to the gospel of grace and he closes by praying that the Savior's grace would be upon them to strengthen them and, and empower this spiritual son in the faith. So as you persevere, as you persevere in faithfulness to God, you can rest in the Savior's grace that's been given to you. You can remember God's perfect faithfulness that's always being extended to you. And you can rely on this strength that God has given you to actually finish the course, fight the good fight of faith, and finish the race. And then, when your life is over, you will go on to join all of the other saints in Jesus' heavenly kingdom. Let's pray. God, we pray that this message has been good news for us. This is an amazing, amazing high calling. The faithfulness that you've demonstrated to us and that is shown to us in the life of Paul and even these other men. We know that they live that life because of Jesus. And so your faithfulness demonstrated to us that you stand by us, you strengthen us and rescue us. These are precious promises to cling to every day. Pray for my friends here, Father, that as they have heard your word, that it would be comfort to their soul. God, that it would be something that you would use to, uh, to cause them to endure and persevere to the end. May we all heed this example of being faithful to the end, fighting the good fight of faith and finishing the race. Be with us now, God, as we worship. I pray that you would turn our hearts towards Jesus. And because of what he's done, we would give you all the glory. We have time here to sing, Lord. We have space. And I pray that we would take advantage of that. And as a congregation, sing together to Christ. And just feel the glory of what it is to worship together as a family. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You can stand.